Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, November 13th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's sponsor is Loot Crate. For less than $20 a month, Loot Crate gives the geek in you a special treat every month. Loot Crate is a subscription box service with more than $40 worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, etc. delivered to your mailbox every month. And this month, they're bringing you a fight for the ages. Suit up, choose your allies, and enter the arena for combat. They're ready to stand their ground this month with exclusive items from Blizzard, Fallout 4, Capcom... I have no idea what any of these things are. <laughs> Should you be doing this one? I do know what they are, but it's pretty All funny right. to listen to it this way. Okay. Capcom, sponsor-worthy loot from the Hunger Games, as well as a few more items that will help their winners emerge victorious. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash mines and enter code mines to save $3 on your new subscription today. Hey, this is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac, and I want to let you know that this episode is also sponsored by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. All you got to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So we're still in November, and therefore we are still in our month of space. And this week we have an awesome guest. Yeah, I got to cross an item off my bucket list. I interviewed an astronaut. So awesome. Yeah, it's amazing how, you know, you hear kids say, like, I want to grow up to be an astronaut. I am in my late 30s. Let's say late 30s. And I still want to be an astronaut. I got to talk this week to Dr. Katie Coleman, who is a former astronaut. And it was like speaking to a hero. 
I was blown away by her. She is formerly a chemist, near and dear to my heart. Uh, she was a lieutenant in the Air Force as well, and then applied to be part of the uh, the NASA astronaut mission, and it has been in space for more than 150 days. She served, uh, she did two missions, one that launched the Chandra uh, Space Observatory, and one that did a number of experiments on microgravity's effects on fluids, uh, and then also spent um, a long period of time on the ISS. It was like talking to a hero. It was it was magical to talk to an astronaut because we really had her on to bring a perspective in contrast to what you heard from David Newman a couple weeks ago to really speak to the human aspect of what it would take to invest in in this journey to Mars. And she's on special assignment in the NASA CTO office led by David Miller uh, to investigate collaborations with other uh, different genres, specifically in synthetic biology, and bringing that expertise to bear in some of the development of these missions uh, that lead us towards Mars. Well, when we launched Inquiring Minds, one of our first interviews was another astronaut, my, my friend Marsha Ivins. And so I was excited to give you the opportunity to, uh, to interview Katie, but also to have featured two female astronauts on our show, which I think is pretty great. I mean, you'll hear this in the interview, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but she talked about she became an astronaut partially because Sally Ride came to MIT while she was an undergraduate there. And seeing Sally Ride opened up a whole world of possibility uh, to what she could become. And she thought it was vitally important uh, for us to constantly showcase opportunities uh, to, to people that normally wouldn't see that within their worldview. And what better can you expect from an astronaut who, uh, by definition, are heroes to yeah. be something so heroic as to inspire a whole world of opportunity to a next generation? Well, I'm in my 30s, too, and uh, I still want to be an astronaut. And so when I found out that NEXA is actually recruiting astronauts, there was a part of me that was like, you should totally apply, but I'm not going to apply. <laughs> It's an online application. You can try it out. They get about, uh, last time they did this was back in 2011. They got about 6,000 applicants and quickly winnowed that down to about 2,000 uh, with the, a total goal of having about like seven or eight candidates. And they're doing it again. Uh, I mean, it's amazing to me that, that you would have an online application to, for an astronaut. But if you hear from like uh, Canadian Chris Hadfield, one of the more famous astronauts today, he ended up becoming an astronaut by responding to an ad in a newspaper. So this yeah. idea that like anyone can become an astronaut as long as they have a certain skill set and temperament is really true. I kind of like how aspirational that is. Yeah, awesome. But first, let's talk about some science in the news before my interview with uh, Dr. Katie Coleman. Indre, anything catch your eye? Yeah, well, actually, my story this week was caught by a research assistant, Caitlin Smith, and she pointed us to several major news outlet reports that the first use of gene editing worked to save a patient's life. And this is the kind of uh, uh, healthcare news that I'm definitely keeping track of. Um, I think it's along the road to personalized medicine, and it's really revolutionizing the way medicine is going to be practiced now and in the near future. Well, let's talk uh, yeah. to tease out what you mean by gene editing, because so, yeah. that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So let me start with the patient in the story. The, the patient was an 11-month-old baby girl who was dying of leukemia because all of the other treatments had failed. And so her parents were desperate, and so they they agreed to an experimental trial. And let me unpack this for you. Since cancer involves a person's own cells, treatments have to work around a patient's immune system, right? That's why so many forms of chemo and other treatments are so hard on the body. They target not just cancerous cells, but they kill healthy ones too, which is why you feel so bad. But what if we could get the body's own immune system to recognize and eliminate 
only the cancerous cells. That's kind of like the holy grail, right? So scientists have been working on doing just that, engineering T-cells, the assassins of the immune system, to recognize a molecule on the surface of cancer cells and target them. And in the past, clinicians have successfully done this with a patient's own T-cells, right? So that the immune system of the patient doesn't reject those cells as belonging to a foreign organism. You know, that's the big problem with organ transplants, of course, that the host body will reject the transplant cells unless the immune system is heavily suppressed. But what if we could build an off-the-shelf engineered T-cell from a donor that could be used to treat almost anyone so that they didn't have to use their own cells? Well, you might say, well, why can't people just use their own cells? Well, in this case, this little girl had leukemia and she was very young. So she didn't have enough of her own cells to use this method to bring down her cancer cells. So what if we could delete the T-cell receptor that works like a gatekeeper in the patient's body, the part of the cell that recognizes whether a T-cell comes from a person's own body or from someone else, essentially, you know, silencing the receptor? That's the gene editing part, right? Yeah, I'm really curious who the donor is in this case and like and how that match was made. Well, I I mean I don't know, I don't know the details on on that perspective, but the idea here is that ultimately I guess maybe maybe the donor has to have certain certain uh, you know, characteristics, but the idea is that you could find a universal donor whose cells then could be used on anyone. And so that's what they did here. They used uh, a donor cells and dele- they deleted the, the receptor and her body did not reject those cells right away. And that allowed her to become strong enough to get a bone marrow transplant, which is a potential cure. So that's pretty exciting. Um, there are still a lot of questions to be answered. Like, for example, how long would those cells last in the body without tipping off the immune system? But the idea that we might be able to create a universal T cell that can specifically target cancerous cells in anyone is really exciting. That is uh, pretty magical, in fact, uh, to hear about this and to have it be done in a human patient uh, is revolutionary. This is the first case of that, uh, from what I recall. That's right. This is the first published case. Now, you know, it's it's possible that there are other cases that are in the works that haven't been published yet. Um, it's almost, you know, highly likely that that's true, but we don't know. This is the first case where, you know, it's it's been published. And so far, you know, three months out, the, the child is still cancer-free, and it looks like, you know, this life has been saved. That's fantastic. Yeah. So my news story this week goes up against something you just said, though. Uh oh. So uh, you just said cancer comes from your own cells, mutation and grows out of control. What if it didn't? I have a real weird case for you. <laughs> what? Yes, it's bizarre. Uh, but we have the first documented case of a patient with cancer that derived from another organism within the human body. Whoa, like part of the microbiome? No, not quite that, that level. Uh, there was a patient in Colombia who was immunocompromised, had HIV, and had a tapeworm, probably the most common tapeworm out there, the H. nana uh, tapeworm, which uh, like infects you know upwards of like 30% of the population. And this tapeworm developed cancer, and that oh. cancer spread within the patient. Wow. And so it actually spread all the way to the, to the lungs, and uh, this cancer came out of the tapeworm. They're able to tell through some of the scans, that the cancer wasn't from a human cell. And it's one of the first cases ever reported of a cancer spreading from another organism to uh, to a human being. Wow. Is this like really rare? Or is this actually something that we should be looking out for? So there's some questions here. There's some unfortunate uh, elements of this case in the sense that the patient passed away and they unfortunately did not 
do an autopsy and preserve the body. So there's some, going to be some questions that just are unanswerable because of of that situation. But moreover, there's some suspicion that um, that our own immune system is the one that tamps down on like a parasite like this. If they had any sort of cancer from it spreading, it points to all sorts of problems. Like maybe our immune system is just going to overwhelm something like that developing because the cancer cells that came out of the tapeworm were really small in terms of the tumor size compared to what you normally see tumors in humans develop, especially in the areas they developed in, like the lung where you tend to get really big tumors because of the the blood flow into those areas. So there's some questions there. This is a really special case where a guy had a parasite, was severely immunocompromised, was not taking any medication to keep down the the virus in, in this case. So this is a really strange case, but it's one of those real end of the bell curve outlier mysteries, but it's actually can potentially point to some really interesting things about um, how cancers can spread organism to organism. I think that's a, probably a long shot, but it's an interesting case. Yeah, really interesting. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with Kishore's interview with Katie Coleman. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? I think that's a description of me. Then Loot Crate is a subscription box for you. Loot Crate is a subscription box service with $40 worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, etc. delivered to your mailbox every month. Make sure you head to lootcrate.com slash minds and enter code minds to save $3 on any new subscription. Each month there is a different theme, which are all inspired by classic movie and video game releases, as well as pulling from pop culture franchises. Previous crates have included items from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda, and many more. This month they're bringing you a fight for the ages. Suit up, choose your allies, and enter the arena for combat. They're ready to stand their ground this month with exclusive items from Blizzard, new trailer released for Warcraft, Fallout 4, the next 100 hours of my life devoted to that game, Capcom, sponsor-worthy loot from The Hunger Games, as well as a few more items that will help their winners emerge victorious. Whether you're risking your life in battle or taking no prisoners in the wasteland, our loot will be at your side to help keep things interesting. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. Did we mention they ship to over 13 different countries too? You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com minds and enter code minds to save $3 on your new subscription today. Kishore, are those Decepticon socks? They are 100% Decepticon socks. So maybe I mean, that's the kind of thing you can get from Loot Crate. No, wait. These are Autobot socks. Autobots. So, oh, you're right. <laughs> See, that's how much for what you I always know. suspect the worst of me <laughs> being traitorous. I'm always on the side of good. I wish I could fly, though. This episode is also sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. You just have to go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Need a recommendation for a book once you sign up? How about the book we talked about recently with Adam Glinsky and Marie Schweitzer, Friend and Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. Or from a few shows back, Beth Shapiro's How to Clone a Mammoth. Audible's got them both. 
Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Dr. Katie Coleman, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm pretty thrilled to be here. So I'm the one that's thrilled to have an astronaut on. But before we talk about some of your current projects, I'm hoping we can dig a little bit into your background on how you became an astronaut before we we delve into the science. So speaking of science, before you were an astronaut, you were a scientist, a chemist to be precise. So I was hoping you could give us a little bit of your own sort of personal science background. Well, I, I majored in chemistry undergrad, which, you know, I wasn't going to do that at first. I kind of knew I could do chemistry, and I thought maybe I should do the hardest thing in the world for me. So I was a really, I was an electrical engineering major for like a really miserable six months until I figured out it wasn't so bad to do something that you just really loved. <laughs> so I did chemistry as an undergrad. And then I was also ROTC in the military. They paid for college for me. And we had sort of a handshake. I took a time out after college. I went to MIT undergrad and uh, and I went to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst for polymer science and engineering, which I really love because it's kind of this applied chemistry where, you know, the, the, the products are things that you really can make and they're products and things that make a difference in people's lives. And so I, I really liked doing that kind of uh, work. And at the same time, I had my at the same time I had my Air Force commitment, and I started in at the Air Force Materials Lab out in Wright Patterson Air Force Base, working on new kinds of sort of bigger, better, and interesting Kevlar's. And uh, from there, I applied through the Air Force to the astronaut program, and and have been down in Houston since 1992. And was it always a goal of yours? Like you looked up the sky and you knew you were going to be an astronaut or was was this sort of a non-circuitous path? Well, so I'm I'm 54, almost 55, born in 1960. And basically girls didn't do these things when I grew up, when I grew up. And when I see that picture of the Mercury 7, you know, seven guys standing in front of an airplane, there's really nothing in that picture that says to me, this could be you. And, and it didn't. And it wasn't until Dr. Sally Ride came to MIT and talked to all the students that I looked at her and I thought, wow, maybe I could try to do that. And, and so that's why I think it's so important for, you know, everybody to get kind of be out there for the new generation and accessible to them so that kids can realize that, you know, the careers they think that might be beyond them really could be theirs. And when you actually became an astronaut, did, did you have a sense that uh, this was a bigger commitment than just going and doing the missions? Like you describe what Sally Ride did for years following her missions. Like, did you know you were getting into a much larger commitment to uh, NASA and sort of our our exploration of the universe as part of this? I'd say yes, but I, I was pretty thrilled about the whole commitment in that you know, if you do the math, you, you figure out that the number of days that you spend in space is not significant to the number of days you spend at NASA before you get to, to do that. And, you know, so I've been at NASA now for 23 years, 92, yep, 23 years. And I've gone to space on uh, three missions, two shuttle missions, one 16 days and one five days, and then one five and a half month mission to the International Space Station, which is amazing and i loved actually every second of uh of those missions but there's really a lot to do in between flights and it's i mean some of it is like just really cool astronaut 
stuff, you know, where you, I mean, there are some days that you wake up in the morning, you go to the big giant swimming pool and, you know, three people help you put on a big giant 300 pound spacesuit and you go and practice a spacewalk that might happen on your mission. And that's when you really, really, really feel like an astronaut. But I spend a lot of time in a classroom and I spend a lot of time kind of just seeing what other people are doing and and helping them understand the astronaut piece of that if they're developing things for space. And all those things are actually really exciting to me. So I, I love all these aspects of the job. And uh, I guess the, the current one that I'm doing, you know, we all have different jobs in between missions. And my current job is to work with Dr. David Miller, uh, who's NASA's chief technologist. And I tell people I'm some some kind some kind of a cross between a spy and a Trojan horse in that, you know, our mission is to, you know, seek out partnerships with people here on Earth uh, about the things that we're trying to do for space. And he's a really neat guy to, to do that with. And I think we're going to come back to your role at NASA here in just a minute. But uh, I, I would be remiss without asking you about a couple key science projects that you are part of as as part of your missions to space, because I think they're they've become vitally important to uh, astronomy in general. So one of your first missions, you actually helped put out the X-ray observatory that's in space. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience. So this was a very short mission because the Chandra X-ray Observatory was the largest thing that NASA had ever brought to space. I mean, it was like 50 feet long. It weighed some number of tons that that I've forgotten. And I was, you know, part of the crew that, that launched it. I was actually the person in charge of launching it. And it, it was, I think it was $1.8 billion at the time. And you know, it's 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 hard to have that responsibility, and and basically, it's it's your job not to make sure that nervousness about the actual deploy doesn't get in the way of doing a really good job. And and a lot of kids will ask, you know, if you're ever scared going to space, and I say, well, you know, I would say I'm worried about making a mistake, and I can't really afford to be. So my recipe for that is that I just try to make sure I've done all my preparation. And, and and that seemed to work out great for, for Chandra. What was significant, or I mean, there's so many things that are significant about Chandra. I mean, this is our telescope that basically everything about black holes that we know now comes in some way from the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Because by looking at X-rays, it's those exciting things out in the universe. It's like stars exploding and galaxies surv- uh, uh, colliding and even black holes, you know, they're sp- sucking things in, but they're also spewing things out. And so it's these really amazing events in the universe that Chandra is measuring. But for me, starting and doing the mission, meeting the scientists and engineers that designed that telescope, I mean, these people designed it and thought of it 25 years before it was launched. So it took most of their career while they're using other kind of lesser and, and very kind of more approximate X-ray telescopes you know, where they're just saying, if we build this thing, we will know so many things about black holes and all these phenomena. And they had such faith, and then we deployed it, and they turned it on. And sure enough, they were exactly correct. And so it's just, it was really wonderful to be part of something that is still moving and growing and and teaching us. This brings up something I've always wondered about. There, there's so many scientific experiments that are uh, conducted on the ISS that the astronauts are responsible for, uh, but it probably doesn't operate in the same way I think we think about experiments being run back here on Earth. Can you talk about this interface between the scientists and engineers that are designing some of these experiments and what it's like to actually run them when you're 
you know, miles away up in the atmosphere and you can't, you know, just sort of walk around the corner and, and talk to each other about what's happening during them. Well, I'd say that we're actually always pushing at that interface, you know, and trying to really get, you know, basically our noses as close together as we can have them, even though one of us is in orbit and the other is on the Earth, whether it's the designer or the the person who knows the most about operating the experiment. When we're doing it up in space, I mean, it's nice to, to remember from our training, you know, you have sort of an image of a real person and what they care about about this experiment. And even, you know, the way they talked about it, and they'd say, oh, okay, so when I'm pulling this thing out, I'm always really careful to do this. And one thing we do is is make sure that the the procedures themselves really reflect what we have to be careful about and what we really need to do, because we actually won't remember. So we have to follow the directions. But we've also gotten to more and more have those people whose experiment it is actually have them on the line where we can directly talk with them. And even if they're not directly talking with us, they're they're actually always kind of just one seat away or maybe one telephone away where somebody at like the the Marshall Space Flight Center is is maybe the the Capcom actually directing the experiment, but the person whose experiment it is is watching every minute and watching their data. And actually it's hard to do that and talk to the crew at the same time. But we do also now interface directly with them because sometimes, you know, that that telephone tag where somebody says something to somebody and, you know, there's just different things in their voice you're not going to hear unless you just really get to talk directly. So we're addressing that more. We also we also do it by video where they they can make little little videos and say, this is the part you are going to screw up. And so <laughs> when you want to put it in that way, this is when you stop and you think again. That's amazing how technology has is, is developed so you can do that in more real time. I have to admit, I asked you that question. It's a little bit self-serving because a friend of mine forwarded me this job opening that NASA is advertising right now to become a part of the next uh, series of, of astronauts. And I and I read through the job posting. By the way, I think it's it's functionally bizarre that you can apply online to become an astronaut. I know there's more rigorous steps than that, but I thought it was really <laughs> interesting that you could. And I was always, and one of the things that, you know, is listed on that application is like you, is your scientific background because you'll be doing experiments for a really long period of time. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this, this sort of recruitment call for scientists that that's going out that opens in mid-December. Well, we say scientists, but it's also for engineers, pilots, basically anybody with a technical degree and three years of experience in their field is qualified. So anybody with a technical bachelor's degree, um, anybody with a master's plus two, and I think a doctorate plus none. Um, but the the things that I have to say about actually applying apply to more than just the astronaut job, which for me was, you know, a, a dream job. Um, and, and that is that, you know, you have, whether it's online or or, you know, on a piece of paper, you've got an opportunity to fill in a form and tell somebody about who you are. And you can either sort of really, really brag and maybe kind of be obnoxious and, and say all sorts of things. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you could just do the minimum that is really, really easy to read, but maybe doesn't share enough. And, and you need to be somewhere in the middle there, because if you don't tell people who you are, they can't pick you. And, and you actually don't know, I mean, you can't know as a person applying, um, I mean, you can try to know what's important in NASA, but, you know, a bunch of different people are reading those applications. And even though we, we make sure several read every application, 
you know, you can't know what kind of means something to people. I mean, to me, when I would read, because we're, we're out for those, those science and, and engineering skills are a given. I mean, you need to have those. And at the same time, you know, we work in an international environment, um, some ability to uh, speak a language. It's not a requirement, but, you know, if it's something that you can show, you know, and you know that you're going to be working with Russians and Italians and Canadians and Japanese on the International Space Station, it doesn't hurt to show that that kind of thing comes easily to you or not. If you're really good at fixing things or if you're actively involved in getting really good at fixing things, I mean, that's something to share. Somebody told me that they, on their application, they ran a summer camp for kids for like three years as the main person actually running the camp. And I thought, you know, this is safety. It's interacting with parents and with kids. It's teaching. It's following procedures. It's regulations. It's critical because it's kids and families and safety. I mean, this is somebody I'd like to have on my spaceship. That's amazing that you talk about somebody that that works with kids as being in- exceptionally qualified to be an astronaut. I guess I, I'm well, a little. We, all, su- we are all actually kind of kids <laughs> who haven't grown up to some extent. I guess I'm a little surprised. I always thought the the process for for becoming um, an astronaut or or other high level positions at NASA would be more of the you go out and recruit this specific person. But this open call kind of struck me as a a really kind of differing approach. Is this sort of a, a, a new approach of the agency or has it always sort of been like this? It's actually always been like that, that they make an announcement basically based on the missions that we've got coming up. And so in our case, we're going to, you know, the people who are, um, I think they, they start applying in the middle of December, we take applications for a couple months and it takes a, a good year to actually get through those applications, you know, get it down to a group that you're going to ask for recommendations from, get it down to a smaller group that you're going to, you know, ask to come down and and interview and then actually pick. And I think they are picking, you know, I think they said something like seven to 12 of them. So that, that whole process will take about a year. And that's kind of the way we've done it, although we're always looking for for ways to, you know, just make sure that we're really seeing people. And what's interesting to me, having taken part a little bit in the selection process, gotten to read some of the applications, you might think that people are reading along and almost just looking for a reason to go, nope, not this person, when, you know, just because there's so many applications and it would be easier to opt somebody out. And really what I found was just the opposite, that basically we really try to keep people in the process where, you know, you see something and you go, well, they don't have that, but maybe they have this and maybe they can show this and wouldn't, you know, they, they have this thing that other people don't have. And, and it really is an opting, you know, keeping people in the process as long as you can. And, and I liked that aspect of it and also just felt like it was, you know, done really well in terms of the, the hearts of the people that are really reading the applications. People really try to read in an optimistic way as opposed to a kind of doubting way. I'm really curious that uh, about what you'll be looking for in a, a crop of astronauts now versus when you applied. I mean, the the missions that we're talking about going on are dramatically different. I mean, where uh, the agency seems to be talking about, we're talking about recruiting astronauts that are going to eventually be the first people to set foot on Mars, which is a totally different a set of of missions than what you went through. Well, we're always looking for a mixture a mixture of people and and whether you are three people in a tiny spacecraft which i've been one of those you know going up and down to uh to the international space station in the russian soyuz i mean there's a certain set of skills for that i i do think that there's a different set of skills for the very first you know the very first 
Mars mission or the very first deep space mission or the very first, you know, asteroid related mission. I mean, there's there's something about being the first and the way we usually address that is that it tends to be the people who are, you know, technically really, really on top of their game and show particular skill in sort of seeing the big picture of what they're doing and also the the small picture. And they're just really, really steady in terms of being able to get the job done. And so even though those missions are different and being the first could be different, there's still so many things that are common. And, and you might think it's hard. Um, you, I mean, a lot of people ask me, you know, gee, 16 days with seven people in the space shuttle, wasn't that just like really tight and cramped and awful? And six months on the space station with six people, you know, what was that like? Actually, what's in, what's interesting to me is that the mission itself is so compelling. I mean, the fact that once you're up there, it's so very clear to you every single minute that all those minutes are important and that the more work that you can get done, the closer we are to going to Mars. And, and that happens every single day. And so it's just what you're doing seems so important that whether you like each other or appreciate each other or wish each other was different really just takes a second seat. And you, and you really just, you know, act as a team in the best way that you can. And, and so it's, it's a good lesson for Earth when sometimes things don't seem as critical. And yet you should still bring that same spirit to, you know, your partnerships at work and your, your partnerships at home. At the same time, um, you you mentioned at the at the beginning you spent you know 150, 160 days in in space. What we're going to be asking some of these these future astronauts is going to be closer to four hundred if they're talking about going to Mars and coming back. What do you see as the changing landscape of, of skills that we're going to be looking for out of this out of this next set? Um, that may not have been the case, you know, 15, 20 years ago when um, when we uh, were recruiting astronauts at a different time period. First, I think it's important just to think about the distance and the accessibility of help. We think in terms of our journey to Mars, we think about being, you know, right now Earth reliant. So we're, you know, we're sending supplies from Earth. We're sending, we're communicating in almost real time and within seconds of, of real time. And as we move further out, we're going to, you know, the communication gets slower, you know, a longer round trip. And and then, you know, the ability to send supplies changes as well. And so that really changes the the sort of physical requirements of the mission in terms of the, the spacecraft itself and, and how we plan to get to Mars and actually stay there. But then for the people, I, I think you, you need people that can act on their own with less support can make decisions, good decisions, you know, as a group, can really be relied on to respect uh, each other as teammates. And, you know, and, and, you know, because it's going to happen for a really long time. When you first started asking me that and you said, you know, 400 days, my first thought was, you know, I, I would have stayed another six months or more in a minute up on that space station. I basically in a, did in not. In a minute? Why? <laughs> why in a minute? Well, because I loved being up there. I loved being part of basically creating the, the future. I felt like a colonist. I felt like the things that I was doing were making a difference, even though, you know, many of them are, you know, there's many experiments and you're doing one small step, but we're, we're figuring out, you know, what do liquids really want to do? And it makes a big difference for us in understanding liquids for all the equipment we operate up in space. But, you know, down here on the Earth, it's every single process that involves flow through a pipe 
you know, whether it's, you know, a faucet or a, fa- a pipe in a factory that's making something or, or our veins and arteries, we understand a lot about the flow along the middle of the pipe, but not the forces at the walls. And so up in space, without gravity, we get to see what do those liquids really want to do. And I loved being a part of that, of knowing that life would be different down here on Earth because of the things that we're doing, and that we would be closer to being able to actually survive as humans out in space. And, and I love uh, one, of my, one of my cohorts, uh, Don Pettit, I thought really put it best when he said, you know, if I could have taken my family with me, there was really no reason to come home. Wow. That is an, an amazing sentiment because I, I understand the commitment to the mission and I ex- understand that sort of explorer um, nature that I, I've, I've felt come across through uh, talking with a lot of a- astronauts. But uh, what you're really talking about is, is a, even a level higher than that, that you see benefit that comes back to the Earth by being this explorer. And I was wondering if you could expand upon wh- what that is. There seems to be this notion that what you're doing is going to not only be pioneering in a lot of ways, uh, but really impact life on Earth in a really positive way as well. Well, one of my favorite examples is osteoporosis. I mean, we lose bone up there uh, 10 times faster than a woman down here on the Earth who has osteoporosis. So what she loses in a year, one of us would lose in a month up there if we did nothing. And so we're learning about diet, we're learning about exercise, we're learning about um, you know different things in the diet like vitamin D or salt content. I mean, those are experiments that are ongoing. I, I think, you know, even though our numbers are always small up there, I'd say that both the good and the bad news is that exercise is here to stay and that it really seems to make a significant difference in maintaining your bone strength. But yeah, I'm very proud of of, you know, knowing that stuff that we did and that even that I did up on the mission, you know, could make a, a difference for, you know, people that are older that are losing a lot of bone, which will, you know, include me soon. And and it's actually fantastically important to our economy when you think of the the medical costs that are caused by, um, you know, degradation of bone and, you know, falls and broken hips and, and things like that. I'm curious if you had a hard time adjusting back to earth when you got back. Was it a was it a process that was uh, hard? I mean, there's a mechanical process there. You have to sort of recover physically from the from the experience. But is there also a psychological uh, recovery as well? There's definitely both. I'm a kind of an absent-minded person in a way. You know, I'm the kind of person that can lose the remote to the TV. You know, a couple times in in one night, certainly. And uh, and so because the things that you're holding on to up in space, they don't really weigh anything. You know, you can sort of forget that you have them. And what I found when I got home, um, so I, I had to be really careful about not losing things up in space. But then when I got home, I would pick something up and I would just drop it. You know, by mistake, and then look down at the floor and just be so honestly puzzled, like, how did that happen? You know, <laughs> so there's the physical part. Emotionally, it's interesting. You know, you're you're up there. You can email with people. You can call anybody uh, whose phone number you have, or you can find on on our internet protocol phone. And so, as much time as you have, which isn't very much, um, you can. I mean, I, I certainly talk to my family every day, but three, I think, out of that. 159 days. So you can do a lot of communicating. And at the same time, your world is kind of finite and limited. I mean, not everybody in the world can email you because there's, you know, any permission for that email to, to get through. And when I first got home, 
we did we do a lot of medical experiments when we get home and a lot of testing like oh what was she like before space what is she like now what is she like when she got home in a lot of different um some invasive ways and so we're doing a lot of medical tests we tend to be a little and we're doing a lot of rehab and i found myself just it was just a little overwhelming to go back to our office building and kind of see everybody in the hallway and and just i just kind of wasn't ready for so many people and in some ways you know i really actually didn't want to come home quite yet. And uh, and there's a certain grief involved in that. And I do a lot of traveling because my family lives far away and I commute. And I, I just wouldn't want to look out the window of the of the airplane for a while because, you know, the view is actually very evocative of, of the view from space. And I just was sort of like, you know, if I can't be there, I just don't want to see it. Do you see that as the real human challenge for us to continue our exploration towards Mars? Is this is this emotional, psychological challenge that you refer to so personally and so eloquently? Or is there something else that, that we really need to, uh, that you see as, as our hurdle to overcome? I think more, not in terms of, not in terms of challenge, but maybe in terms of calling. I mean, when, when we were talking about, you know, the passion to, you know, that you're doing the work and you know it's making a difference up in space. I mean, the example that, I mean, when you're really part of it, there's just something so compelling about that. And I liken it to, you know, you can think about what it's like to be on some sailing ship and sailing off towards the horizon. And I can picture that in my mind of what the ship looks like. And there's the people on it. And I've seen them in books and movies and, and things like that. But when uh, I actually got to go on one of those tall ships that was, you know, a couple hundred years old and and the way I felt when I was there, you know, at the end of the boat, at the bow, you know, with the wind blowing by you and, and you in nothing that you can see on the horizon except horizon, I, I just felt differently. I really felt so present in that, that, that it's just part of being part of the earth and yet going further. And, and I think that that feeling, you know, that people are driven to be part of, of what's happening someplace that is our world, but not quite the place that we've been. You know, that leaving the planet is something people are just going to do because we live off the planet as well as on. We live in the universe. And and so low Earth orbit is the first step. And further than low Earth, Earth, low Earth orbit is the next step. And unfortunately, it takes a lot of patience to get there. And you spoke of challenges. I think that the patience that's required is to realize that there are a lot of very small and slow and steady steps that need to be taken in order to decide you're going to go and live someplace that is not at all like the place that we live. That is a exceptionally beautiful sentiment. And it opens up this idea of uh, in the past, like when we got to the moon, that was NASA driven, US driven. Uh, but now we're in an age where it seems like international collaboration, collaboration with lots of different types of organizations are going to be necessary for us to make those incremental steps. Is, is that what you're seeing sort of start to uh, take shape now within NASA as we're making, making these incremental steps towards low Earth orbit and make our journey to Mars a reality? The International Space Station is an amazing testament to international cooperation. And often folks will think about the six people that are up there, usually about three Russians and three kind of combination of U.S., um, European, Japanese, Canadian. And and so that's an international cooperation right there, the, the six people that are up there. But actually down on the ground, 
there are, you know, what I, I get, I lose track all the time, but about 17 different countries that are making decisions every single day together about what that crew is going to do every five minutes and what they're going to do, you know, next month and in three months and six months and in, in four years. And that's a group of an international group of people that's making those decisions. So the space station itself, you know, I'd say we're, we're solidly in low Earth orbit. It's got six people on it going around the Earth 16 times a day. And that's working. And I think we need to take those lessons and take them further because to me, it actually just, it, it's something that I kind of came back with. It, it's hard to even think about doing something alone as one country. It's just sort of a non sequitur to me about why we would think that when we're leaving a planet that's made up of all of our countries. And so I'm I'm assuming that we'll be doing it a, a together. And, and actually, technically, I think we have to. We really need all those countries. We actually need a very diverse workforce. And that will include not just the scientists and the engineers, but the the folks that uh, you said you interviewed Deva. And uh, Deva, I think, puts it really, really nicely when she talks about steamed. So we need, we need STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. But there has to be an art, an A, a for art in there. And there has to be a D for design. And it's all those elements that are going to make up the space travel. Are you optimistic that this um, this journey to Mars is is going to be a reality that we actually see humans continue on. There, There's lots of reasons to be pessimistic, whether it be about funding or differing um, views of what uh, a vision of what space exploration can look like. But in the face of that, uh, are you optimistic that we can actually make this journey together? I am optimistic. I'm also certain that it will take more patience than we'd like to have. I mean, it's hard. I I don't mean to trivialize it, but Mars is far, and and it's really different there in terms of the atmosphere and, you know, just the conditions for spacesuits, for space vehicles, for people living. There's some incredibly hard technical challenges that we have to overcome, and it's going to be technologies that have not even been invented yet, which I I think is really a fascinating concept. And so we have to be open-minded we have to, as NASA, I think we have to search out innovation. We can do a certain amount of innovating on our own, but um, remarkably, the the things that we do in, in order to design a spaceship to go to go to Mars, where we can't, we want to recycle water, we want to recycle air, we'd like to make something useful out of the CO two that we breathe. You know, it's probably going to be engineering biology that helps with those solutions. And what's fascinating to me is that. Those same problems that we face for the journey to Mars are the same challenges that we face as a planet for sustainability. And so NASA is coming to the sustainability uh, world to help understand, you know, what are some innovations that we could have for the journey to Mars? You know, will we see it? Yes, we will. Will will people go? I am absolutely certain that people will be leaving this planet and departing from Mars, arriving there and staying. And whether you and I personally see it or not, you know, I think 2030 is at least the minimum, but it, it will happen. It's it's inevitable. And I can't wait to see it, how it goes. What do you see as the, the long lasting benefits of our continued sort of push for that journey to Mars? I mean, there's the exploration spirit that we're talking about that'll get us there. But at the same time, do you see benefits rippling back to Earth that are going to linger for, for decades, if not centuries, by really investing in this space? The Earth benefits are going to be 
enormous. I mean, in that, I think that space and in, in sort of the magic of going and the, you know, just the, the grand adventure of leaving our planet and going to another, you know, that sparks a passion in people and acts as an accelerator where they feel like we have to figure this out. I mean, that's why, you know, NASA is beginning to find its place in that engineering biology world, which I consider to be one of the the very much up and coming fields that will solve some of our, our problems. Um, and, and the things that we need are actually going to spark uh, innovations in, in, in things that people need down, down here. I mean, growing plants in an environment where it's not very friendly and there's not very easy access to energy and clean water, those are challenges for space. They're challenges for Earth. Uh, recycling water. You know, what kind of filters or, you know, how do you, I mean, how can you do it in a way that can be really, really, really reliable? I mean, that's what we need for space. Well, that's what we need for Earth as well. You know, we don't have enough water down here and we need to conserve the water that we have. And the same thing for recycling air and the energy needed to recycle air and uh, what kind of batteries that we need that could be very renewable up there in space. You know, we'll need those for Earth as well. I I could go on and on, but basically everything we need to leave the planet and live somewhere else is something that helps us live more safely and sustainably on this planet. I was going to ask about the band because I, I like Bandella. Band. <laughs> I love the band too. <laughs> Which band? Oh, Actually, I'll, there's okay. two astronaut I'll, bands, you know. There are two? They I are. only know about Bandella. Ah, which is so the one I'm the in, other? so it's the only one that matters, right? <laughs> 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 Actually, there's there's also Max Q, which is more the rock band, which I've played with sometimes, but not not as much. But uh, I've loved uh, doing Bandella. It's actually Don Pettit's wife is the singer, along with Chris Hadfield and Steve Robinson and Dan Burbank and myself. And it's, uh, you know, this this whole space training, you know, space station, you know, going up to the space station and living up there in space has been, you know, pretty hard on the band in that it's hard to get together to practice and it's even hard to get together to perform. Um, but we've actually done both from the space station. <laughs> Have you been able to perform terrestrially? Like, uh, isn't everyone in the band is now on Earth at this time, right? Um, in a manner of speaking, we are. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I actually got to play with the band when I was up in space for one of my psychological conf- conferences. They uh, they brought the band in as a surprise. And so the band played and I played along, which really means that they have to actually not listen to me because the delay would be confusing. But it was just the most uh, the most wonderful time to sort of play together. And in fact, that's what I would do. Um, in my time, you know, kind of alone at night when you're just, you know, kind of settling down to go to bed, I would uh, take tapes of, of what we are, or recordings of what Bandela had played and just play along with it up in the cupola watching the earth go by. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I have one last question that's sort of tangential is there is such a commitment from the astronauts to communicate, especially using social media. I mean, uh, making all of these videos in space. What's sort of the driver behind this? This is not, you know, necessarily something I would expect out of astronauts because you have so little free time when you're you're aboard the ISS because there's so many missions and experiments to handle. Why such a commitment to communicate? Right. And this is where like one single person has made a difference in everybody's lives. And there is a guy at the Johnson Space, Space Center. His name is Dylan Mathis. And he was hired by the space station program to bring the space station alive for the world using the astronauts' voices and videos. 
And he just does it in such an effective way. I mean, partly in the video that he puts out, but also actually in the way that he works with us, where he sits down and he talks to people and he says, okay, so what do you want to do? Tell me about some of the things that are important to you. Tell me about the audiences that are important to you. You know, if you were, if you had a free Saturday, where would you be? And, and just helping to develop some of those things. And then, you know, most of the things you see on film are things that we've all done in our spare time. Um, I've done the, the duet with Ian Anderson for music and, and also playing um, a little music uh, for the Chieftains for St. Patrick Day, pa- Patrick's Day. But everybody has their own kind of personal things that they do like that. And, and video is just a way to share, you know, the magic of what we're doing up there with with other folks. Um, I think you're seeing some really neat reading projects right now with uh, Shell Lindgren, where, you know, when you see an astronaut up there on the space station reading to their kids, um, I mean, I, I did that and did some video of it. It's just, a, it's a way to really share the fact that it's people that live up there and it's people that live down here. And it's just, you know, spaceship Earth is a is a special place that we all live on. It's just that uh, some of us live on, you know, off the Earth as well. With that incredibly human perspective on space exploration, I, I think we'll we'll call it a show. Uh, Dr. Katie Coleman, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you. It's real. I, I love your show, and uh, it's really neat the places that you take people to. So, thank you. I love talking to Katie. She look absolute hero, absolute bucket list item to talk to an astronaut like that. But the one thing that really stuck with me, she said a lot of memorable lines, but the one thing that really stuck with me was this idea that it's going to take a level of patience that she's not sure we have to actually accomplish some of these missions. Yeah, you know, I was surprised I didn't hear more of that kind of talk from David Newman last week. You know, she was so positive and it's infectious, her positivity. And you know, but we still have a lot of hurdles, I feel. I, I don't think that it's a sure thing. And I'm, you know, I'm sure she wouldn't say that either, that she certainly has a lot of, but but her faith in our, in the fact that it's going to happen was so strong that, that it really amazed me. So hearing from Katie, some of the real sort of challenges and some of the worries and fears that the astronauts have about this mission, um, in, in some ways was refreshing. Yeah, I think there's a a sense of inevitability that came through from Katie, like, we're going to have a human get to Mars. The question is, is it going to be what Katie and I are still wandering around uh, the Earth? Or is it going to be later than that? Is it going to be sooner? Uh, I think there's a a question there. And I think what she brought was the realism of a a scientist and an engineer to bear that there's Mars is far, is far. And the incremental steps... Um, belie what we see in movies and pop culture. They're like, we have to do all of these things, construct all of these um, vehicles and missions that are going to take decades themselves to serve as just the foundation for us to launch something to Mars. Uh, So we're talking about like 15, 20 years to even get some of the, um, some of those missions in place before we even are sending a, a crew there. But I do share her optimism in the sense like, there's no way we're not sending a human to Mars someday, because it's just within our human spirit. Uh, I think the question is, is those incremental steps that it'll take to get there, how long will that take? And what will be the ancillary benefit of us taking those steps 
uh, to the humans here on Earth. You know, that was the thing that surprised me about, you know, David Newman saying 2030s, we're going to be there. And that's at about the same timeline as Katie was saying. But, you know, there wasn't this and that was felt like inevitable. Like, I don't really have to do anything from, you know, me as Indre from my own seat to make this happen. Like, NASA's got this. But, you know, I think that we don't know which of those hurdles are going to be you know, rate limiting, right? Like, which is the one that's actually going to require a, a leap that we don't necessarily make in a year to, to solve? You know what I mean? Like when the problems start coming up, you know, we don't even know what all the problems are yet, I don't think. I think that's the most, as- that leads to the most aspirational thing that Katie said is that they need people that are artists, they need designers, they don't just need scientists and engineers, they need a whole slew of novel thinkers that are going to help accelerate this program if it's going to happen because that level of patience and incremental iteration we know that's what the science is going to look like we know that it's not we aren't just going to launch something up into space and all of a sudden you know quick cut we're at mars like that's not how it works we know that but at the same time uh i'm i felt a level of confidence and optimism in hearing that nasa is knows that they're up against it and they need to recruit a whole diverse set of people to be part of these missions if it's going to make a difference. And, you know, so the the application is online, <laughs> you know, fill one out if you're at all interested. Um, but also I remember <laughs> I remember talking to uh, Marsha Ivins, the, the other astronaut on our show, and being surprised when she said that, you know, the, I met her at a dinner party once and she said the very first thing that, you know, one of the very first things she said was, I would be, I would volunteer for a one-way trip to Mars. And I'd never met someone who sort of, you know, had that, was believed so strongly in something that they would uh, take a one-way trip. It's going to stick with me for a long time hearing Katie talk about coming back to Earth and not being ready to come back to Earth and that she wanted to stay. Yeah. And I think there is that there's that spirit, there's that sense that astronauts are cut from a different cloth uh, well, than myself. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm certainly I am not a heroic figure in a way they are, but that that deep sense of like I want to explore. Well, so um, in preparation for my application, Kishore, um, I'm going to go see The Martian tomorrow. <laughs> I, I think there's I think writing that you saw The Martian on your CV may not be as much of a boon to your application as you oh, think. Well, bummer. <laughs> Maybe I'll find something inspiring. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. Join us for the rest of November as we continue to explore space and our potential to get to Mars. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and our anonymous patrons. And this episode is also sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. All you got to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your application to be an astronaut, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by future astronaut applicant Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. 
And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.